Well, good morning, everyone. Please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 7 today. John chapter 7, as we continue our survey through the Gospel of John. We're going to do our best to look at the whole chapter, but initially here I'm going to read through verse 39, starting in verse 1 of John 7 today. Here we read in verse 1 of John 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks The glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the father's. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and They say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him. For I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? 
And the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. May the Lord add his blessing at the hearing and the reading of his word this morning. Well, with that introduction, are you thirsty today? Well, this morning, I want to introduce you to two men. They're not here in our midst. Two men who ended up with two different destinies. Brian was a young man with a beautiful wife and family, with his future in front of him. He had a solid career making good money and was working on his engineering degree. He had just recently moved from the east to the Kalamazoo area. He was full of life and had everything to live for. And then there was Eddie, whose life was a complete mess. Eddie was on heroin by the time he was nine years old. Growing up on the streets of Detroit as a little Italian kid, he quickly became part of the mob scene involved in high-stakes gambling, money laundering, and drug trafficking. At one point, he was stabbed, and eventually he actually got shot but survived. Which one of these guys do you think ended up coming to Christ for streams of living water? Well, as we'll see today in our study, sometimes our unbelieving relatives will put us to the test. When people reject our faith, they are ultimately rejecting Christ. God doesn't always fully disclose what he's going to do. But who is this Jesus anyway? Some wonder if Jesus really exists. Some think that Jesus was just a good man. Some think that Jesus was just a deceiver. Some are afraid to openly talk about Jesus. Some think that Jesus was just a good teacher. Some think that Jesus was demonic. Some think they have Jesus all figured out. Some only believe in Jesus intellectually. Some believe that Jesus should be locked up. and Some are just plain confused about Jesus. However, as we'll see in our passage today, we need to put our trust in Jesus and him alone. And as you do, Jesus will quench your thirst. Rivers of living water will flow from your heart, and you will be filled with his spirit. Our message series is that you may believe. Today's focus is finding rivers of living water. Today I have six spiritual principles to look at as we follow the crowd's reactions to Jesus and his teaching. But before we study, let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we recognize our desperate need to hear from you today. Not from this speaker, but from you and from you alone. Oh God, be our teacher, be our guide, be our instructor. Lord, help us to submit to what you have to say here. 
and to be open to be changed by it. Thank you, Lord, for opening your word to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And now, Lord, we ask that you open our hearts and our minds to receive it. Thank you. We pray all this in your son's awesome name. Amen. If you have your sermon notes outlined, here's the first truth of six. Now, these first three are going to go pretty fast. We have quite a bit to look at today, so here we go. Sometimes our unbelieving relatives will put us to the test. Isn't that what's kind of going on here in these first five verses? It said, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing, for no one works in secret. If he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then we find out, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Oh, my goodness. Hey, go down to Jerusalem, would you, so that you can get yourself in big trouble. Initially, Jesus continues for the time being to stay in the north in Galilee because of the pending danger that awaits him in the south in Judea. It's the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a fall harvest time for the Jews, a festival celebrated for seven days with a great gathering on the eighth day, the great day as was mentioned in the passage we just read, when all of Israel was to gather before God. For this celebration, the Jews would live in tents and small shelters to remember the beginning of the wilderness wanderings in the days of Moses. In verse 3, here Jesus' brothers offer Jesus some advice. Now, we're really not sure what their motivations are completely, other than that uh, what we see in verse 5, his brothers were not believing in him. Maybe they wanted to see him fail based on his prior claims. Maybe they wanted to see if he really was the real deal. It's not too different than Joseph's brothers who sold him down to river in slavery because they were jealous of him. Perhaps that's what's going on here. I'd like to remind you that just like Jesus had relatives watching him, you also have relatives watching you. How many of you have a close relative who does not follow Christ? How many of you have a close relative who isn't following Christ? Yeah, look at the hands everywhere. There's a lot at stake for us here, isn't there? Your family wants to see if you are for real. They want to see if your faith really matters. By the way, you'll be able to touch their heart way more by how you live than with what you say. The old adage, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. One former church father said, preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. Sometimes our unbelieving relatives will put us to the test. How are you being tested? Secondly, when people reject our faith, understand they are ultimately rejecting Christ. Sometimes we're afraid of that rejection, if I share my faith, they're going to turn me away and understand they're not turning you away nearly as much as they're turning away from Christ. This is what's going on. In verse 6, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here, talking to his brothers. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. Twice he says that now. 
after saying this, he remained in Galilee, as we'll see for the time being. Jesus here reminds his brothers that his time has not yet come, just like he said to his mother in John chapter 2 at the wedding in Cana. Mom wants him to do a miracle because they've run out of wine. He said, Mom, it's not my time. We know how moms can be, right? He then reminds, not my mom, my mom's awesome. She's fantastic, so don't worry about that. He then reminds his brothers that as they have opportunity, the world will not hate them because the world is really in opposition to Jesus. To such an extent, the world is in so much resistance against Christ, they hate him. They hate Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the one testifying against unrighteousness. Verse 7, that its works are evil, he says. Nobody likes to be told that they are wrong. No one, likes to be, no one likes to hear that, hey, you're doing it wrong. No one likes to be told what to do. Who is this Jesus telling us to do anything? But in verse 8 and 9, the world despises Jesus because Jesus requires an answer. Will you deny yourself? Will you pick up your cross and follow him? Will you? Apart from Christ, no one wants to deal with the question of what to do with Jesus. So remember, as you share Christ and people turn away from you, you're in great company because many walked away from Christ. They're rejecting him way more than they're rejecting you. When people reject our faith, they're ultimately rejecting Christ. But thirdly here today, God doesn't always fully disclose what he's going to do, does he? He doesn't tell us everything that's going to happen. Notice what it says in verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. We go, well, wait a minute. I thought a moment ago you said you're not going, and now you're going. Contradiction. We're good at finding contradictions, aren't we? Some have supposed that Jesus is contradictory here or that the text is somehow contradictory within itself. On the contrary, Jesus only discloses to his brothers, who, by the way, have it in for him, he only discloses to his brothers his immediate plan and not his whole plan. And so it is with us. Most times, we do not have the privilege of seeing God's complete plan for us. And by the way, if he did give it to you, it would probably blow you away and freak you out. He, being God, isn't obligated to show us everything we want to know when we want to know it. If someone had told me 25 years ago that I would be pastoring seven different churches, I would have said, you're crazy. But that's exactly the, the trajectory that God has had me on. Jesus only shows us enough for our next step. Remember what the psalmist says, Psalm 119, 105. Your lamp is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's just a lamp for the next step, right? The next step there. It's a lamp to my feet. See, we want God to give us this big searchlight thing so I can see everything. No, little lamp, next step, that's all you get. Why? Because that's sufficient. That's enough. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. God just is not obligated to fully disclose everything. He gives us just enough to keep us cruising by his sheer grace. He will give you what you need for that next step. Fourthly here, 
we come to this question, well, who is this guy anyway? Who is this Jesus? And now we see all the different reactions, all the permutations. There's actually 10 of them. I've got 10 of them here that I found. Maybe you found more. I don't know. It's kind of remarkable. But some wonder if Jesus really even exists, and that's still true today. There's some, I don't know, I don't think Jesus really existed, people will say. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? <laughs> I've heard about him, but I don't, I don't see him. Maybe he just isn't. I'd like to remind you that Jesus is, he does exist. I'd like to remind you that our whole dating system, what year is it? 2023. A.D., it's the year of our Lord, 2023. The whole world is dating our time based on the existence of Christ. Have you recognized that? He exists. He's real. He was here. But secondly, some think that Jesus was just a good man. That's what it said in verse 12. And there was much muttering about him among the people. Well, some said, well, he's a good man. Maybe you've had friends say, well, I know he's a good man. He's, he was a good man. He exists. But it's clear that he's more than just a good man. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He's like us in every way, yet without sin. That's not just like some good man. That's beyond that. Peter confessed even last week in our study in John 6, 69, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You're not just some man. You're, you're something else. Can anyone in this room say that they are the Holy One from God. Can anybody say that? Anybody in this room? I can't. Hi, I'm Brad. I'm the Holy One from God. No, really, Brad? I think you're a nut job. Only Jesus could say this. Why? Because he was more than just a good man. He is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. And therefore, as God, he must be holy, holy, holy. That's beyond just being a good man. Holy to the third degree. Some wonder if he exists. Some think that he's just a good man. Thirdly, some think that Jesus is just a deceiver. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. He's just a deceiver. He's a liar. In C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis introduced to the world the idea of the trilemma. Perhaps you've heard of it, the trilemma. The reality is here, we really only have three options in what we can do about Jesus. Either he, in fact, is the Lord, or he is a liar, or he's a lunatic. That's the trilemma. Lord, liar, lunatic. You've got to deal with that question. And from these options, there's only one credible solution. Here's what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic 
on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems obvious to me, C.S. Lewis says, that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. What a fantastic conclusion. Those are your options. Jesus is either Lord and we must bend our knee to him or he's a raving lunatic or he's a liar. Some are afraid to openly talk about Jesus. As the text unfolds in verse 13, yet for fear the Jews no one spoke openly of him. Are you afraid to speak openly about Jesus? Do your co-workers, fellow students, or family know where you stand? Or are you kind of a cloak and dagger Christian, kind of hiding behind the scenes? Do they know that you are a Christ follower? What is keeping you from speaking openly about your Savior? These people were afraid of the Jewish authorities. I ask you, what are you afraid of? We've all been there in that moment in the conversation where we feel a little uncomfortable, like, I know I should say something about my faith, but ugh. And we shrink back, we wimp out. Jesus said in Luke 12, 8, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. How are you doing in that? That's tough, isn't it? Like I said, we've all wrestled with it. Do I say the next thing? If the Lord's prompting you to say the next thing, go for it, say the next thing. Don't shrink back. And let's see where God takes the conversation. Fourthly here. I should say, fifthly here. Some think that Jesus was just a good teacher. Oh, he's a good man. Oh, he's a good teacher. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now, how is that possible? It's remarkable, isn't it? Again, Jesus can't just be merely a good teacher unless he really is, in fact, divine. Why? Because he went around telling people that he was God. What kind of a good teacher does that? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus says. Can anybody in this room say that? Hey, if you've seen Nick, you've seen the Father. I love you, Nick, but I don't think so. Not possible. I and the Father are one. I forgive you your sins. Who can say that other than the God-man, Jesus Christ? But again, the people were challenging Jesus' authority. And so Jesus steps up and he speaks. Jesus answers them, making it very clear that his authority is from God the Father. My teaching is not mine, but it's his who sent me. All that Jesus taught was from his heavenly Father. Jesus' authority, secondly, is confirmed through our obedience. This is a remarkable truth. Don't miss this. Look at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, 
he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking by my own authority. Are you hearing that? If you really want to know to what degree this is all true, I dare you to live by it and demonstrate it. That's what Jesus is saying. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Are you doing it? Are you doing the will of God? This is huge. Don't miss this. If you want to know the power of Jesus' word in your life, you can only find it through pursuing it. That is through pursuing obedience, pursuing his will in the matter. The only way to know that Jesus' words are really from God is by the fruit you will find as you walk in his truth in an ongoing basis through your obedience to him. Some will say to me, well, pastor, I tried that. It didn't work. And I'm like, well, maybe you should try longer than a week, you know? Maybe it takes longer than that. Maybe it takes a lifetime. But thirdly, Jesus' authority rests in the glory of his heavenly Father. Verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Ultimately, here Jesus is only seeking to, to glorify his Father in heaven. This is all he is about, period. And this is, what, this is all we should be about, is seeking God's glory. Whose glory are you seeking? Sixthly, some think that Jesus was demonic. In verse 19, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd reacts, you you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment, you guys. What's Jesus saying here? Look, the only reason you're on my case is because the, the religious authorities have stirred you all up because I healed a guy on the Sabbath, told him to pick up his mat and walk at Bethesda. That's the only reason you're on my case. And now we kind of know why Jesus really didn't want to go to Jerusalem because he knew this is what he was waiting for, right? This is what was going to happen. All I did was heal a guy on the Sabbath, and now you want to destroy me for it. We're told throughout Scripture that Jesus Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Basically, you know, how can you say that I'm evil or from the devil or demonic? Because we know a house divided against itself cannot stand. You guys don't get it. You're not listening. But further, some think that they have Jesus all figured out. Listen to the crowd's response in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Isn't that that guy they're trying to kill? Because, I mean, why are they saying that? Because a moment ago they're saying, who's trying to kill you? (laughs) And the guy's well, yeah, well, isn't this the guy? That's the guy we're trying to kill. See the irony here? Verse 26, and here he is speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. That is, the religious authorities aren't doing anything about this guy. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Oh, dear. But we know, notice the arrogance here, 
we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. The people supposed that since their spiritual leaders weren't intervening, then perhaps Jesus' ministry was being endorsed by them. Maybe his ministry is legitimate. But notice what they said. We know things. We know. Notice the arrogance and the presumption here. People make claims about Jesus Christ all the time. You've heard your friends say things about Jesus, and they have no knowledge about him whatsoever. I am always amazed at, at people who talk about their knowledge of Jesus, and they've never even read the Bible. Have you run into people like this? It's remarkable. Well, where does it say that? Well, I don't know. Well, then why are you saying anything? You want to know about Jesus? Read the book, and then let's talk about it. Let's hear what he has to say, and then we can scrutinize it. Eighth here. Some only believe in Jesus intellectually. Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now notice what's going on here. At first glance, we read this and go, oh good, there's people who believe, but understand the basis by which they're believing. They've got a criteria in their mind about how, well, the Messiah that I have in mind should do these kinds of things, and he's doing those kinds of things, so therefore he must be the guy. Notice, what's the litmus test? Themselves. It's possible that there were those who actually believed in Jesus based on who he really was, but there were also those who only had an intellectual assent to who Jesus was. In other words, Jesus must be the Christ since he's performing at the level of my expectation. As long as you come through for me, God, then I will follow you. This is how this goes. Beloved, we can't judge God by our own criteria. We have no right on the contrary, it is God who will be judging us through Christ. But there are those who think they know all about Jesus. Oh, I got Jesus all figured out. Me and God, we've got an understanding. Oh, really? Is it from the Bible? No, but I've, we got it. How'd you get that? How'd you come up with that? Such arrogance. James reminds us. By the way, it's always remarkable when you quote James because he was one of the brothers who didn't believe in Jesus. And now he is. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. So what? Has your faith in Christ changed your life? Has it made any difference? Ninthly here, some believe that Jesus should be locked up. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Let's get him out of here. Let's throw him in the clink. Time and time again, they attempted to arrest Jesus, but he always walked away and eluded them until the very end when he finally gave himself over to them when he was betrayed by Judas. But he wasn't going to be arrested until he said it's time. Some people just want to throw away the key on Jesus. And then lastly, on this point, some are just confused, aren't they? Perhaps you've run into them. And these are the ones that I have the most hope for. The one who goes, you know, I really don't understand. I don't really know. I'm just like, okay, well, can I show you some things? 
Did you know this? No, I didn't know that. Well, that's awesome. Then Jesus said in verse 33, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You'll seek me, and you will not find me. Where I, where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to another, well, where does this man intend to go that will not find him? I don't get it. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am cannot come? This demonstrates confusion. I don't understand this Jesus guy. Where is he going? What does he mean? Are you confused about Jesus? Are you confused about him this morning? You don't have to be. Rather, fifthly today, you can put your trust in him. Beloved, we need to put our trust in Jesus. This is what Jesus says. He reminds the crowd that he is the one who will quench their thirst. On the last day of the feast, the great day Jesus finally stands up and he cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This likens us to the woman at the well in John 4 where the woman says, sir, give me this water. This is Jesus' consistent messaging here. I am living water. Only he can satisfy our thirsty souls. He's the one who will quench your thirst. Are you parched this morning? Are you thirsty? Turn to Christ. He's the one that rivers of living water will flow from your heart. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, verse 38, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus will quench your thirst. Rivers of living water will flow from your heart. When you put your faith and trust in him, you will no longer be parched, but you will be well watered and flourishing. The psalmist said in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, prospers. The youth group was down in Florida this summer doing some hurricane relief work, and man, was it hot. What was the heat index down there? 110 every day. And it would be like, you know, 9, 10 o'clock at night, it's still 90 degrees. I mean, it was just, it was horrendous. We kept changing shirts because, you know, three seconds later, at least for me, you've already pitted it out, right? It's all over because it's hot and you just could not drink enough water. But in Christ, we are satisfied. You ever seen the movie Ben-Hur? How many of you have seen, not the new one, the original? You got to see the original. I, I'd love to see that like on the big screen someday. You know, not my itty-bitty screen, but, like, you know, right in the cinema. Ben-Hur. I don't know if you ever noticed, next time you watch Ben-Hur, the original with Charlton Heston, it's a story about the Christ. Notice the thematic elements of water. Throughout the movie is an issue of water. It's remarkable. Shows up in all kinds of places. At an oasis, he's pouring water on himself. He, Jesus is speaking on... The Sermon on the Mount, and behind him, he, he's scooping up some water in a stream. At one point, uh, Judah Ben-Hur collapses as he's going off to the gallows. 
and he cries out for God to help him, and here's Jesus giving him water. And later, as Jesus is carrying the cross, he collapses and carrying the cross, and here's Judah Ben-Hur who wants to return the favor because he's like, I know this man, and he tries to give him water. And the ultimate is at the cross, the, the storm comes, as Jesus still hanging on the cross, and the water washes the blood over the land, <laughs> and you see the redemption of the blood of Christ that brings cleansing. It's, just, it's beautiful. But you guys, we're all longing for that kind of water that changes everything. We're, we're finally refreshed. We're no longer parched. We're not thirsty anymore. He says he is that. He's precisely that water, living water, where streams will flow out of your heart as you trust him and only him. Thirdly here, as we put our faith and trust in Jesus, you'll be filled with his spirit. In verse 39, Jesus goes on and says, Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Of course, that happened at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the early church. Jesus will talk more of this toward the end of his ministry when we get to the back end of John's gospel. But here John gives us a brief glimpse of what is yet to come. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You'll be filled with his spirit. Rivers of living water will flow from your heart. He will quench your thirst. But even with all that, it breaks our hearts to realize that some are still divided about who Jesus is. As we look at verse 40, we didn't read this part before, but you need to hear it. Notice what's going on real quickly now. Verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Speaking of Moses' words about the prophet from Deuteronomy 19. Others said, well, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah, the promised one. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? You see the problem, see the divisions? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Division, controversy. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. <laughs> the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, remember last time we saw Nicodemus, he was sneaking around at night. Nicodemus pipes up, who'd gone to him before and who was one of them said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too, Nicodemus? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee, Nicodemus. They went each to his own home. End of discussion. Not only are people divided about Jesus externally, 
but people are often divided about who Jesus is internally in their own hearts. Notice the irony that's flying around in this section. Don't miss this as we wrap this up. Incredible irony in these final verses. It turns out Jesus really was from Bethlehem, which confirmed their speculation about him. They wanted to seize him, but they couldn't in verse 44. In verse 45, they say, well, why didn't you grab him when you had the chance? In verse 46, the response is, did you hear how this guy talks? This guy's incredible. The authority says, well, you haven't been duped by him too, have you? In verse 48, we haven't lost any other leaders, have we? Nicodemus pipes up. Well, the voice of reason suggests we have no right to judge this man without hearing him ourselves. And that's what he had done. He went to him privately, didn't he? In verse 52, never mind what you're saying, Nicodemus. Go look something up for us. <laughs> that's what they say. In verse 53, at the end of the festival, they all just went home. Put their tabernacle away for another year. Put their booth back in the closet. What about you? You're here another week. Are you just going to fold up your Bible, pick up your papers, go home in a few minutes? Or will you take Jesus with you? Have you found rivers of living water this morning pouring out of your heart because of your love for him? I started out with two men. First one had everything to live for, everything was going his way. Beautiful wife and family, great career ahead of him. But he destroyed himself. He became a murderer. And to this day, he's in the state pen, and he will never, ever get out. He attended our church at one point, and I shared the gospel with him. I had him in my home and ate with him. Showed him what it would look like to follow Christ. And he looked right at all that Christ offers, and he chose to murder. It's over. My Detroit mobster guy, <laughs> the kid who was on heroin by age nine, who had been stabbed and shot. He ended up at a couple's house that took him in after he'd gotten shot. And they were Christians, and they shared the gospel with him, and he gave his life to Christ. And God turned this guy's life upside down in a beautiful way. Gave him a, a wife and family, something to live for. Two different guys. One guy running away from the cross, another one running to it. I've seen this all too often. Which way are you running? Are you running after? Are you finding streams of living water? Or are you finding a desert that is parched and empty? Would you please stand as we close our service? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power and the truth that's in your word. And we see it verified in the lives of your people where one man finds destruction and rebellion, selfishness, and another one finds life, not only an abundant life here, right now, but eternal life with you. Lord, help us to find the rivers of living water that you have for us. Oh, that we'd put our trust in you, knowing full well that you're the one who will quench our thirst, 
you have rivers of living water for us that will flow from our hearts as you fill us with your spirit. Oh, God, help us to not miss these things. Lord, if there's someone wrestling with what to do with Jesus today, help them to understand they re- that all we can do is call him Lord. He's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He is Lord. He's the one who forgives sin. He's the one who brings reconciliation. He's the one who saves. So if you're wrestling with that today, oh, give your life to him even now. Say, yes, Lord Jesus, I need you. Turn to him by faith. Walk with him. Trust him with your life and watch him do amazing things and prove that his words are true. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this time we can study your word, tear it apart, dive into it. Oh, Lord, help us to take these things and walk in them, not just merely hearing them, but being moved by them towards you, that all of us would find the streams of water, living water that you have for all of us. Thank you, Lord. We give you all the praise today. And all God's people said, amen. Well, thank you so much for coming. Just a reminder, next Sunday is John chapter 8. You don't want to miss it. It's the woman caught in adultery. John chapter 8. Be here. Have a great week.